0: This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne CheyenneWY-giving.
1: We're in Acts chapter 2. And let's just take it, well, let's pick up our context, because it was two months ago that we taught in Acts chapter 1. So Acts chapter 1, just as a quick review, uh, uh, showed us the great commission that was given to the church by our Lord Jesus Christ, showed us um, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, which was that other comforter that Jesus said would come, that is the Pentecostal experience okay, or the very kick-starting of it, it is also the beginning of the Christian church. Acts chapter one, actually Acts chapter two will show us that here in just a few moments. But it also shows us the replacing of Judas. Judas, who was one of the apostles, Judas, who was a traitor. Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, off he went, he reaped the reward of that treachery, and then that was the end of his story. And so they elected, and it was really just, I think it was just about the only Example of the democratic process in the Christian church was the election of Matthew as Judas's successor. And then we actually brought this out that we don't really read anything about Matthew after that. And so, well, what kind of a a governmental structure do you have in this church, Pastor Snyder? Well, not democratic. I'm not saying that it's wrong or bad. We're just saying that It really isn't what God intended. They drew they drew lots to elect Matthew, and then we don't read anything else after that. And so he ended up being elected to an apostolic role, but then we don't read anything of his apostolic work or his labors. Now it doesn't say for certain that he didn't do anything. It just means we didn't really find anything after that, or after this mention of him in Acts chapter one, his replacing of Judas. Yet, as we get further into the book of Acts, we'll be introduced to a man by the name of Saul, and you all know who he is, and Saul was not a good guy, oh no, not at the beginning. He was a terror is what he was. He was a monster and an enemy of the church, and he persecuted us, even to the point, uh, and I say us collectively, the whole body of Christ, not just this local congregation, okay? We're not exclusivists here. But he persecuted believers and ran them down even to Gentile cities where he had no jurisdiction and no authority. But feeling that he did have authority over Jews no matter where in the world they were, he presumed to track them down, hunt them, arrest them, and bring them before tribunals and things like that. Much like they do in Canada with their human rights tribunals if you are guilty of something like hate speech. It's one reason why we don't have any works up in Canada yet because the gospel does not have complete and free course. Hopefully, prayerfully, that will change one day. But all of that happened in Acts chapter one, the election of Matthew and these other things that happened. And then we pick it up in the beginning of chapter two. It says in verse one, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. What's that mean? They were in a group in a certain location. We don't really know where it was, was it an upper room? Was it a synagogue? doesn't really mention. It says they were all in one accord, with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. "...as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans?" And how hear we every man in his own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and in Cappadocia in Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Now let's stop right here because it's the end of the the paragraph. And let's go back and let's really pick apart what happened here. Because there are multitudes of Christians that are afraid of this paragraph. They are afraid of this whole chapter because of what it implies, okay? There are multitudes of other Christians that are not necessarily afraid of it, but they have simply, they have pigeonholed it in their minds as being a historical episode, and that's it. it has no bearing on the church today. It was just something to kickstart the church at the very beginning of this thing. Both camps that hold that particular opinion where this scripture is concerned are wrong. And we'll get into that in greater details. We get further along in the book of Acts. You'll find that this is not the only occurrence of this kind of a miracle, okay? And if you're getting ready to dismiss us as just a bunch of crazy Pentecostals, we're not. We might be a little crazy, but we don't really wear the Pentecostal label. And perhaps that'll come up with, with greater expectation later on, because there are things that Pentecostals do that aren't always scriptural, okay? There's a lot that they do that are. There's a lot that they do wanting to be scriptural, but it's not necessarily. But, you know, in their hearts, a lot of times are in the right place. And so we're not trying to throw stones or anything like that. But here we have it. This is the historical account of the fulfillment of the prophecy which was given way back in the book of Joel in the last days. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And Peter will even uh, refer to that here later on in this chapter. I think in the next paragraph, he may mention that. Um, This is the fulfillment of that scripture. This is also the comforter that Jesus Christ, our Lord, promised to the church. He promised it to us, the comforter that he was going to leave with us to, I want to say to continue his work, but really it's to do the Holy Spirit's work. That's who the comforter is. It's not to carry on Jesus' work. Jesus went on to return to the Father, sits at the right hand of God, continues to intercede for us, etc. The Holy Spirit has his own work that he's doing for us or on our behalf. Now he's doing it for the Lord and he's doing it on our behalf. And that is to provide comfort and power, discernment, guidance. The Holy Spirit, if we may reach over into a little bit of seminary classes here on the subject of pneumatology, the subject of the study of the Holy Ghost, okay? The Holy Spirit's job is to manage us. His job is to manage us. He doesn't override our free will. He does not possess us in the same sense that like some unclean spirit might possess someone that opens himself up to it. But he, if he dwells within us, it is his job to manage us. If we do not resist him, grieve him and all of that, then we can be led by, and we must be led by, the Spirit of God. That's one of the things that he mentions even as, that's one of the things that identifies us as children of God. They who are led of the Spirit, they shall be called the sons of God. So here is where he was first given to men Slash women. Okay, it doesn't say that, but just to use biblical phrasing. Here's where he was first given to the church. Here is where the Holy Spirit first actually filled people. And so, well, do you mean that that never happened before? No, not really. There were times in the Old Testament where you would hear of the Holy Spirit moving upon someone, being upon someone. That's different. It's very different than being completely filled with the Spirit of God. It's dwelling within you it simply was not possible before the death of Jesus Christ because the sin problem of the human race had not yet been solved by Christ's sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And so while people could be moved upon by the Holy Spirit and often were, namely the prophets of old, other men of God, certain of the kings, okay? Particularly David, that's always the first one that comes to my mind. The Holy Spirit could not fill and live within someone until this event right here. Jesus had finally died. He had risen. He paid the price for us. He'd returned to the Father. And now, in fulfillment of his promise in chapter one, in fulfillment of prophecies from centuries prior to this, the Holy Spirit came. So let's go back to the text. When the day of Pentecost was fully come. What was the day of Pentecost, for that matter? Well, it was a Greek name for a Jewish holiday, one of their many holidays, which Etymologically speaking, means holy day, right? That's the word holiday breaks down from holy day, is one of many holy days. I think it was the 50th day after the Passover. And so, Passover, and in this, all of this, all of the events surrounding Christ's sacrifice, death, burial, resurrection, etc., fell in with these Jewish holidays. This 50th day after the Passover, on the day of Pentecost, They were all in one place. Who? Well, the believers, those that believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Now, notice it said that there was a sound, not an actual wind. It was a sound of a wind. Maybe there was a wind, maybe there wasn't. But the sound of it filled the entire place, the the whole house where they were gathered, okay? Okay. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. So let's take the historical narrative at face value. Well, did it mean literal cloven tongues of fire? Well, whatever it was, it looked like cloven tongues of fire, and they were visibly evident. It says they appeared and sat upon each of them. Now, you sign artistic representations all throughout, you know, the artistic world about different episodes in biblical history and things that happened. Some of them are more accurate than others. Um, I think I've only seen one artistic representation of this, and it seemed like, it seemed very plausible, It seemed very true to the text of the scriptures. Some sort of flame appearing above the heads of these disciples. Now, this only happened once. This part of it only happened once, because this was the advent of the Holy Spirit to the collective church at that time, and as many as were gathered together in this one place. This was his initial coming into the church and the first filling of any believers with his presence, his power, etc. So there appeared these cloven tongues as of fire, and sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. So what was that? Was what were these tongues of fire? Was that a was that the visible appearance of the Holy Spirit? Perhaps I don't really know. It it would stand to reason, but the text doesn't really explain it in great detail, so we can't be too dogmatic about it. But we know what happened immediately after the appearance of these things. Resting upon these people, they were filled. And when they were filled, something immediately happened to them. Well, they all fell out on the ground and started twitching and spazzing and being slain in the spirit, right? No, 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 no. We don't read any of that stuff in here. It's like, well, where do these churches get that? I don't know where they get it, but it's not from the Bible. And the Bible is our source text. It's what we use as as our precedent for these things and what to believe and what not to be. It's one way that you spot error and recognize error and not let yourself get sucked up into the sensationalism of it. And so, you know, we don't really do that. That didn't happen here. It didn't happen in in any of the other two or three portions of scripture within the book of Acts that describe people being filled with the spirit. But what they did do was they began to speak in other tongues. Now, that's where the record needle just scratches for a lot of people and just runs right off the record and the music stops and they're just done. We're like, oh, okay, I'm out. Y'all are crazy. No, we're not, and neither were they. And the people that did think that they had something else motivating all of this failed to recognize the miraculous power of God and the Spirit of God at work. Now, I understand being skeptical of this, okay? I was a skeptic myself up until the very moment that I received the Holy Spirit. I mean, the moment but God just didn't care about my own skepticism. We're not teaching about my own experience. We're teaching from scripture. This is the historical narrative and how it happens. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave the mutterance. Now that's another key to understanding this particular kind of miracle slash spiritual gift because it's, Actually, both. Okay, it is a miracle and it is a spiritual gift, as explained exhaustively by the Apostle Paul over in his letter to the Corinthian churches, trying to straighten out their charismatic excesses, which were not all scriptural. Okay, it was both. It says, "As the Spirit gave the utterance." That's the key to any kind of manifestation of genuine tongues. It's not just something, when it's genuine, it's not just something that the Christian just just starts with, making it up out of his own imagination. And it's important to understand this, because again, there are groups that actually try to teach people how to speak in tongues. Here, brother, let me explain how you speak in tongues. Okay, now repeat after me. Tayo bo tayo eat a banana, tayo bo tayo eat a banana, tayo bo tayo eat a banana. Say it fast enough, and it's going to sound like you're speaking in tongues, and then, oh, hey, there you are, he's got the Holy Ghost. But you hear all kinds of you hear all kinds of stories, and and then you hear people try to explain it away, and it, just, it, and it and it all comes from it all comes from the same core of disbelief in this one thing. So they go, oh, well, I still believe in Jesus. Okay, well that's good. And I still believe in God. All the other doctrines that I've been taught, all the doctrines of the Bible, but I just can't bring myself to believe that this is actually a thing. Okay, you have now crossed over into arguing with the word, because here it is it's all right here and let me ask you this question okay what's the difference between the between the church here the brand new newly born church right here in acts chapter 2 and the church now there is a it's the same church. And I might have some denominational tag hanging on it. And there may be variations of doctrines between uh, different congregations that have come from all these different traditions and all of that, and divisions that aren't necessarily pleasing to God, but unfortunately they're a fact of life and, and whatever, that's between them and God, it's between us and God. We, we all have to serve God for ourselves, amen, and individually, as well as collectively, mainly individually. That's how the collective service comes about, is all of us being individual believers in service to God. But there is no fundamental difference between the Christian of today and the Christian of Acts chapter 2. There is a difference between the Christian of today and the Christian of Acts chapter one because the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. But then that depends on the Christian. Are they a born again believer that has simply not yet received the Holy Spirit or are they a born again believer who has? That's the difference between an Acts chapter one Christian and an Acts chapter two Christian. Well, then what's the difference between those two Christians? The Acts chapter one Christian has no power. And they also don't have a comforter. And they also don't have discernment. And they also don't have any of the other benefits that come with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I cannot overemphasize this because it's been described credibly by other believers, more than what I'm sure, as the devil's best kept secret. Why do we attribute it to the devil? Well, Because the devil doesn't want Christians to have the Holy Ghost. If he can keep them from believing that they can have the Holy Ghost, he can keep them from being empowered by the Holy Ghost, being led by the Holy Ghost. And then, well, what you have there is, is still a born-again Christian, right? This isn't some condition to salvation. And that's where some, some other groups also go wrong. They, they try to mash these two things together and say, oh, well, if you don't have the Holy Ghost and you haven't spoken in tongues, then you're just not even saved. It's like, no, the Bible does not back that up, Okay salvation is salvation nothing else is that's believing on the lord jesus christ and his sacrifice and, and that atoning work cleansing you of all your sins forgiving them and taking them away but the baptism of the holy ghost oh, that goodness that can come right on the heels of it or that can come a year later it, it all depends on that believer's willingness openness and 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 willingness to pursue or receive or both i've heard of some people being saved for years before they received before they actually received the holy spirit but it almost always comes down to, do I believe in this or not? Well, how far can I get without the Holy Ghost? You no, know, quite far. Many have, you know. My my uh, my my late pastor R. W. Davis uh, had gotten saved in a Baptist church, entered the ministry from it, became a preacher in the Baptist church, and. Uh, You know, and this particular group of Baptists, because there's like a list of them, there's like six at least, I don't know how many different sects of Baptists there are, everything from Northern, Southern, Primitive, Missionary, and and all these other labels that come along with that, so they're by no means the same across the board, but this, I think he was a general Baptist, okay, and they really didn't believe in this experience, they really didn't believe in it being for the modern believer, or, or for the believer at all, but be outside of the book of Acts, and when you pin one of them to the ground on every single mention of the subject in the book of Acts, and say, well, what do you do with Acts chapter 2, and what do you do with these other parts? in the book of Acts concerning the Holy Ghost baptism, it, what you the answer you'll get from some of them if they're being open and honest with you is we just kind of ignore those sections of scripture because we don't know what to do with them. And the reason they don't know what to do with them is because they've been taught that's not for us today. Well, my question for that is why not? I've never heard a clear answer from anybody so let's go back to it they were all filled with the holy ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance and that's the key as we just said it says the spirit gives utterance it's not as somebody just makes it up and then just goes with it and tries to sound good some folks have prayed in spanish in an english-speaking congregation to try to make it sound like they were praying in tongues it's like well no you're praying in spanish bravo for that whatever but that's not the same thing as the Spirit giving utterance on praying in a heavenly language, okay? Let's move on. And there were, verse five, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Now, this was the miracle of it right here. The gift of, was of speaking in tongues. The miracle was its manifestation in that all these people were praying in a language nobody knew, but then all these people heard about it. It was noised abroad, and they came together to see what was going on because that's what people do. Whenever there's a fire, you always have people that are rubbernecking and gawking at that thing. True fact. I watched a house burn down once. It was epic. <laughs> okay, it's just something about that to torch that dude. That's why people like bonfires and roasting things over. It's just something about watching a fire. It's true in the literal sense. It's also very true in the spiritual sense. They heard about this crazy thing going on because that's what it was to them. They didn't know what to make of it, and so they all came to see. And then the miracle of it was this. Okay, this group of people, and we don't know uh, exactly how many there were. This this group of people. Praying or speaking. Now, it doesn't say they were praying, excuse me. They were speaking. And all of the people, there were like 15 different nations, nationalities, or ethnic groups that were mentioned in this list here, in this paragraph, from all over the region, clear out across North Africa into parts of Libya and parts of Rome, which is uh, uh, that's across the sea from Libya quite a ways over there in what would become Italy, okay? And other parts uh, all throughout, Phrygia, parts of, parts of the Greek Empire, Pamphylia, Egypt, Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretes, Arabians, People from clear up from the Arabian Peninsula, they were not yet Muslims, that was still a few hundred years away. They had all gathered to watch this event and they all heard their own language. This wasn't a case of, though, well, they just all spoke the same language and they were hearing different dialects. No way, man. Because the folks in Rome were speaking an ancient Latin or Middle Latin. I don't know which version of Latin they were speaking at the time, but they were speaking Latin. The folks on the Arabian Peninsula were speaking one of the Semitic languages. You ever look at those two languages? They're nothing alike. I mean, not within a million miles of each other. One reads left to right, the other right to left. One has vowels, the other doesn't. It's like these things are as as unrelated, Arabic is unrelated to Greek and Uh, Latin as Chinese. We're very close to it. Entirely different linguistic systems. There was no chance that this was anything other than a God-given, God-sent miracle of the Holy Spirit. They heard their own language, no matter if they were from Crete or from Arabia or from uh, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, which was up there, actually Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey now. Phrygia, all these different regions, Mesopotamia, all of this stuff. It didn't matter where they were from. They were all hearing their own language. And so, of course, they were marveling at it. But what was it that they were hearing? I can't think of a more glorious example or a more glorious way for the giving birth to of the church, if my English is at all proper on that. Forgive me if it's not. They were all speaking by this miracle of the Holy Spirit. They were all speaking and proclaiming the glorious works of God. So I want you to picture this in your mind for a moment, if you would. Picture yourself there, not as one of that group that was doing it, but as one of that group that was uh, observing it and on the receiving end. Or actually picture yourself as one of the group that was doing it. Either way, either way, they were speaking What they didn't even understand, there's no mention of them understanding it, there's no mention of them not understanding it, but they were speaking languages that they did not otherwise know. And the people gathered heard it. And they were, what were they hearing? Well, they, they weren't hearing them glorifying themselves, that's for sure. They were speaking about the glorious works of God. They were speaking about perhaps the things that God did in the Old Testament, how he brought the Jews up out of bondage in Egypt and how he worked miracles in the midst of them and how he judged nations and how he how He manifested himself and perhaps how he, how he stopped the earth that one day when, when the sun halted in the sky during that battle and they just needed more time to win and they spoke of perhaps that glorious work. Perhaps they spoke of, all of these wonderful, glorious works of God. They spoke of the crucifixion. We don't really know which works they spoke of, but what they were speaking of, all of it glorified God in the languages that all of these other people could understand. What better way to start the church than with a miracle, the likes of which had never been seen and speaking the glorious works of God. And so now, as with anything, okay, when the Spirit of God is really moving on the scene and something miraculous is happening or just something that is of God is happening, you've always got fault finders and you've always got scoffers and mockers and that sort of thing. And so here we are, verse 12, they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, what meaneth this? Others mocking, because you always have mockers too, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine." That's what they said. And then Peter, in the beginning of this next paragraph, in verse 14, speaks up to their defense. And it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. Hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the lord come and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon shall call on the name of the lord shall be saved ye men of israel hear these words jesus of nazareth a man approved of god among you by miracles and wonders and signs which god did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. Let's stop right there because he goes into greater detail. Standing up wasn't just offering a defense. He was preaching a message. It was moved upon by the same Holy Spirit and he was preaching a message. Let's look at this Peter. And let's look at the contrast in this Peter that, we're, we, got, this Peter that we got to know back in the Gospels who was always like sticking his foot in his mouth and saying inappropriate things or, or things at the wrong time, missing the point, just kind of blowing it on several occasions, presuming to rebuke the Lord and then getting blasted for it, and rightly so. This Peter that denied the Lord when he was taken Who's this guy now? Who's this guy standing up in boldness and in knowledge and in power, standing up to explain to these scoffers and mockers that are doing a real disservice to the miracle that was going on around them? Who's this Peter here now? This is a whole different Peter than the one we knew in the Gospel of Matthew. Than the one that that goofed up so many times. This was one who was filled with power and with knowledge and with understanding. And here he is standing up and saying, "Hold on, Doc. You people that are laughing at this and mocking this, and it's like, hey, there's Christians that need to take a warning from this, also. You mock genuine miracles, and I'm all for mocking things that are not scriptural, because there's some precedent for that. You know, there was there was." Um, was it Elijah back in the Old Testament when you, when there was that showdown between the prophets of Baal and he himself a prophet of the Lord and and he was making fun of their god and so mockery has its place but when you got to be careful don't mock something that can scripturally credibly be of God because you might find yourself mocking God himself careful you don't want to be you don't want to be that person you don't want to be that person that says those people are a bunch of loons and what they're doing is of the devil or it's of the flesh. It's like you don't know that. Okay? Now what we use is what we use is sort of a a litmus test and a baseline for that sort of thing, because the Bible even tells us in the New Testament, the apostle tells us to try the spirits to see if they be of God. Okay, so if you're visiting a church and, and you know, and they've got a they've got a so-called worship team that involves dance and a bunch of girls come out in skin tight stuff and midriff showing and a bunch of stuff that's a, obviously not of the spirit but is entirely of the flesh. Well, you, you know, you try the spirits and see. Well, you, how do you try the Spirit? Well, you have to have the Holy Spirit for one thing, as well as the knowledge of God. Knowledge of, Knowledge of the Word of God helps a lot, okay? But some things are not explicit in the Word, and so you need the discernment that comes with the indwelling of the Holy Ghost to fill in those gaps. Why would a Christian be averse to that? Why would they not want that kind of understanding, that kind of discernment, to help steer them in the right path? So I don't want that. I just want you, you know, I've got rules and those rules keep me safe. Okay. All right. Well, and rules do. Okay. But rules also restrict freedom and life in Christ is a life of liberty. And so that brings us up to an earlier point that I think we made a few Bible studies ago or a few messages ago. I don't remember which, you know, well, what's the right way to approach our life? Do I approach the Christian life from, from a direction of restriction and, you know, Touch not, handle not, taste not, don't, you know, don't this, don't do that. Or do I approach the Christian life from a position of liberty and then let the word of God and the spirit of God reign me in where he wants me to reign it in? Well, I guarantee you, you're going to be a whole lot happier in the latter of those two. Now, yes, there's always going to be believers that take that liberty and use it as an occasion to the flesh. I understand that. And so we don't want to follow that path. Let the word let the Spirit both together define the, the confines of your behavior and reign you in on places. And he does that by influencing our heart, influencing our mind, revealing to us, revealing to us exactly what he wants us to do, and, and so on. Now, the other way is safe, but you're going to be miserably unhappy, It's like, my Christianity is defined by a battery of rules, 250 rules long. It's like, okay, wow, oh, wow, okay, great. In in 15 years, if you're still living that kind of a Christian life, you're going to be that hyper, super, judgy, bitter, suspicious, unhappy believer that judges everybody else that exercises any kind of Christian liberty at all. Now, again, I'm not trying to create a justification for anything that's a sin, but the word will direct us that's the thing the word and the spirit both will direct us so so what we're what we're demonstrating here is two extremes which so many things in the christian life we find our liberty right in the middle between those two extremes whom the son sets free is free indeed that's liberty stand fast in the liberty wherewith christ hath made you free that's liberty so they were all amazed they were in doubt peter standing up explained exactly what was going on. And I presume that some of those scoffers, he really shut up with this because he explained exactly what was going on. You're finding fault with these people because you don't recognize a miracle. That wasn't quite his words, but that's, you can extrapolate that kind of a message here with what he was talking about. You're finding fault because you don't understand, you don't recognize a miracle when you see it. It's not always a blast of lightning from heaven. It's not always a spontaneous recovery from a lethal disease or a cancer or something like that. Sometimes it's something that you just don't know what you're looking at. But if we know our Bible, had they known their Bible, they would have recognized. Hey, could this be what the prophet Joel was talking about? And are, were these not also the last days? Well, if they were in the last days of the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, how much more so are we in the last days now? We're 2,000 years into this thing. We're still in the last days. So, while well, he was saying that it was going to be in the last days and the last days aren't here yet. But, but it was the fulfillment of prophecy which said in the last days. It wasn't just a a refreshing of an old prophecy, reminding them of something yet to come. This was the fulfillment of something Joel said was going to come, and it was come right there in Acts chapter 2. It was happening there. So if it was the last days then, surely it's still the last days now. So let's move on a little bit. So... He says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he repeats that prophecy. In the last days, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, this is, this is worth a whole other study right here. What's he saying? Not everybody prophesies all the time. Not everybody has dreams. And by all means, be suspicious of someone that always comes to you with, oh, the Lord sent me a dream last night. Oh, the Lord gave me a vision the other day You know, and they've always got that spilling out of their mouth. I'd say, yeah, be suspicious, but listen. Listen to them. Try the spirits to see if it really is of God, because it might actually be something of God. All that the prophecy said was that these things will happen in the latter days, in the last days, okay? And so don't be surprised if you do. But then what he says here is that your old men are going to dream, dream. But he mentions prophecies as well. It says your daughters shall prophesy. Well, what's a prophecy? A prophecy, a prophecy is a direct message from the Lord received by a person who. I want to say is trained to recognize the voice of God because that implies that that's something you can teach. And there is a little bit you can teach about that, but that's really, that's more of a relationship thing that you just have to grow and develop between you and God yourself. But a prophecy is like God speaks to you, you know, and, and says, you know, and, and speaks to you of things that are going to come or that you need to tell someone else. That's a prophecy. That's a prophecy. And that, I mean, just look at the Old Testament for precedent on that. I mean, it's filled with prophecies. You know, you know, the word of the Lord came to, and then name the prophet because that's what their job was. And, and you know, say unto the children of Israel, say unto the, say unto Jerusalem, say unto this person, say unto uh, name in the Syrian, you know, say unto or, or whoever the prophecy was for. And and it was to Jews and sometimes Gentiles too. It was a message given to a person to deliver to someone else. That. Is a prophecy. So he says here in the last days, he's going to pour out of his spirit upon all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So that falls to both men and women in the faith. If you're open to receiving prophecy, then he can do it. Now, again, it's not something that we just conjure up. That's the, that's the key to all of this right here, And where a lot of groups go wrong. It's like they think that, you know, well, we talked about this when, last summer, I think, when we, when we did a, a couple of Bible studies on the gifts of the Spirit. But he talks at length about the different spiritual gifts, where a lot of people go wrong, a lot of Christians go wrong, in understanding the spiritual gifts is thinking that it's like a superpower, like you're some kind of Marvel Cinematic Universe character, like, my superpower is speaking in tongues. Oh, my superpower is healing. I can lay hands on you and these hands can heal. It's like, no, that's not how they work. That's not how this miracle worked. It wasn't something that was given and then abode in them for them to just use at will. It wasn't like that. All the gifts of the Spirit, these things also that he talks about here, this problem about sons and daughters prophesying, these aren't things that we just generate within ourselves. Say, so, well, I'm Prophet so and so, and I'm going to give you a prophecy. And they act like a fortune teller. You know?
0: Amen.
1: That is not how it works, and that's why it gets misunderstood. And because it gets misunderstood, it gets misapplied. And because it gets misapplied, people disbelieve. And when they disbelieve, they're not open to it. And when they're not open to it, just doesn't happen. Because what happened in in Nazareth when Jesus went there? We preached on this I think on Sunday morning. What happened in Nazareth when Jesus went to his own town and taught in the synagogues and revealed fulfillment of scripture to them? They disbelieved. They were filled with wrath. Blah, 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 blah. They tried to throw him off a cliff. He passed him through the midst of them and they missed out on their opportunity. They missed out on their divine opportunity. And so Disbelief shuts all of this stuff down. It shuts it all down. Now I'm not saying that we should make it the focal point of our Christianity because that's another uh, another error that uh, especially a lot of Pentecostal believers fall into is that it's like they want their Christian life to be filled with miracles and signs and wonders and dreams and prophecies and they just want that going on all the time and if it's not going on all the time they think something's wrong. It's like, wait a second. All of that stuff is at the command of the Holy Spirit. All of that stuff is by the command of God. It is by His will that He gives prophecy to somebody. It's by His will that, uh, and by His Spirit that anyone speaks in tongues or receives a word of knowledge or receives a word of wisdom. Because Both of those are mentioned over in the letters to the Corinthians. Okay? It's, by, it's by God's Spirit that those things are done. So Well, what's our part in that then? Just being willing vessels when he does it. There's no work involved in one of these things happening in your life. It's just you walking with God, close to God, and if he chooses and moves upon you for that, and perhaps you've coveted it because he tells us to covet the best gifts, okay? When what's the best gift? The one that's needed most right now. What good are tongues? Tongues are awesome, but what good are tongues if somebody needs healing? Right? And, and what's good? what good is healing if something needs to come from the mouth of God for somebody's life and their acute battle and their problem in that particular situation? So, it falls to us as Christians to focus most on living a Christian life. And then, when he... When God in his wisdom as being the master of all these and the administrator of all of these things, when God decides to move upon someone with a spiritual gift, give a spiritual gift, okay, and then we're not stymieing that move of the spirit by our own disbelief. We're open to it. And then it's actually of God. It's not some Corinthian nonsense that somebody conjured up just out of because they wanted to be used of God. And again, I'm not bashing the people that do that sort of thing because their heart's in the right place. Who doesn't want to be used of God? Really, as a Christian, don't we all want so, you know to kind of experience that sort of thing? Surely we do. But it needs to be according to knowledge. It needs to be according to the word. What's the lesson in this? It isn't just a history lesson. He said in the last days, he's going to do it. And he did it back then and he still does it today. But he only does it with people that are going to be open to it. So what happens if I'm not open to it? Then you're not open to it and you don't receive. And you may miss something good. You might miss something that changes your entire outlook on life and your entire relationship with God and changes it in a very good way and draws you even closer to him. So what's the lesson? Be open. That's all. Be open. Be believing. The scriptures are for us. These prophecies, of, of, these prophecies, the prophecy of Joel applies every bit as much to us as it ever did to the early church. And so, let's take Paul's advice and be open. Covet the best gifts, as he says. And Don't try to manufacture it yourself. If it's of God, it'll come. And it'll come in his time.
0: Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Wy dash giving.